Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute's Cape Cod office, and Rob is on from the Berkshires. Hey Rob. Hello. So Rob, I'm I, I saw an article in Grocery Dive from Sam Stil- Silverstein, basically the, the headline being to own or not to own delivery, grocers reassess the Instacart dilemma. And it, it really was sort of a, the, a, a survey of what's happening with online delivery. And out of that, the issues of who owns the consumer relationship, who owns the data, and can this be profitable? Um, and, and so that really struck me as an interesting conversation to have not only in grocery, but I think, you know, there are other industries, I mean, particularly as marketplaces grow, where your brands are, are kind of giving up control of the customer uh, in, a, in an age where that data becomes ever more important and profitability becomes an, an issue. Uh, I, and I think you're kind of excited about this topic. Yeah, I, I think big picture if you take retail aside, you take CPG aside, the owning of the consumer relationship, the end user is the most important thing in the age of the internet. So you look at what Google did originally, right? Like Google owned the end user's relationship in search and that gave them leverage over their suppliers. So Google basically by owning the consumer relationship uh, commoditized suppliers of content who are now subservient to Google's whims in some way. Amazon uh, also owns the consumer relationship as the search bar for retail, owning a huge percentage of retail search. And through that, they've commoditized suppliers. And so, so suppliers struggle to you know, plan effectively with Amazon. Margins tend to be lower than traditional contracts they've got through traditional retailers and so on and so forth. And so that, that, that linchpin point of owning the consumer relationship commoditizes those underneath you. You look at Instacart, Instacart owns the consumer relationship. And that is basically turning the store into just like a warehouse that food comes from. Right. And, and so if you're a store like, um, I mean, think of a Publix, which is an experience oriented grocery chain in the United States where they put a lot of effort into making walking into a Publix a good experience. Publix has effectively outsourced their uh, e-commerce strategy to Instacart. It's like all of that investment in the stores don't even matter when, they, when the user is never even walking into the store. And it's, it's the Instacart experience, right? So yeah. the, they risk being, they risk commoditization here. And, and it's, uh, I think, strategically a big risk in, in the age where owning the consumer relationship is becoming the most important point of leverage in the supply chain. Yeah, research by UBS in the UK found that 71% of respondents said they will shop online as often or more after the COVID-19 situation improves. Bain estimates that between 35 and 45% of the recent increase in online sales will turn out to be permanent. Um, and, and, and I think even, you know, even beyond B2C, you know, as Granger starts to really invest in, in being an online B2B marketplace, you can see that same trend coming uh, in, in B2B sales and kind of disintermediating uh, the sort of the sales relationship that, that suppliers have consistently had. 
Yeah, this is this is the the big risk all around here. Um, a, a brand manufacturer traditionally doesn't own a, a consumer relationship, right? So a brand manufacturer 10 years ago uses the word customer within their walls to talk about Target, to talk about Walmart, to talk about Granger. And their relationship with the end shopper is through brand marketing, through through panels and, and things like that, right? Really, the relationship is owned by the retailer. And what companies like an Instacart are doing or an Amazon uh, is they're, in, they're taking away that relationship from the retailer and they're, they're, they're turning the retailer more into just a warehouse and, and where they're just competing on price. You know, the old, the old uh, retail adage, location, 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 doesn't apply when the location is, you know, your web browser, your phone, and so on and so forth, right? So, so these, yeah, yeah, the disintermediation is is exactly right here, and uh, I think that that the article Grocery Dive really captured it, right? To, you know, do you want to own your relationship with the consumer or not, or do you want to do you want to outsource it to Instacart? And uh, I'm a huge fan of Instacart. I think from a grocery chain strategy perspective. Um, that is a risky business to, to really just entrust your whole uh, online experience to a company that that is going to you know basically disintermediate you um, from owning the consumer. Yeah, their Instacart's total order volume increased 274% in August alone compared with a year previously. That put it slightly behind Walmart in U.S. grocery pickup and delivery sales. Like that's huge. And at the at the same time, Walmart's testing Instacart in four markets right now. Uh, Ship says it sales through the, through the service. So Target owns them 300% year over year. Um, Uber's new grocery delivery generated gross bookings at 1 billion annualized run rate in September and is on track to bringing business at multiple times that pace in 2021. So it ain't going away. I think the question is over the next five, seven years, how are brands going to think about and retailers think about their strategies for um for balancing that, you know, and what are those strategies? Yeah, and and it has the is the horse already out of the barn too, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, is it too late? You know, th- think about the EU's largely ineffective attempts to um, regulate Google as, as a monopoly. Now, Google's not actually a monopoly; they're they're um, because you know competition's only a click away. So you can regulate Google all you want. There's still the consumer keeps going back to Google. It's a default behavior, right? And and that the risk when you get a very large aggregator of consumer attention and demand is that at some scale they're kind of unstoppable. There's not really a good way to regulate these folks. And with Instacart at that scale, the question is. You know, almost is it too late? Right? Like, is is it? Uh, you know, can you can you take it back and offer a differentiated experience? Can you invest in micro fulfillment e-commerce solutions like a takeoff, um, in in order to to win back an experiential advantage there? Uh, I don't. I mean, it, that that's you know, it's becoming in my mind an urgent thing for people to be worrying about. Yeah, I mean the um, the grocery dive article again. Sam Silverstein did a great job. He 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 went over a, f- a couple of grocers that are trying, you know, a hybrid approach. Um, Sprouts has its own website and it uses its own store employees to pick and pack orders um, instead of delegating that to Instacart. Kroger, um, you know, they br- they're using Instacart because that's where eyeballs are and they bring people in. But I do think they are trying to transfer those 
those people over time, if they can you know, find out who they are into their own online sales. Cause it says the bulk of Kroger's online sales are coming through its own app and website. Um, so Kroger's uh, the chief financial officer on an earnings call said, we really do see the value in owning the overall relationship and creating a seamless experience. Um, Giant Food, Greg Dorazio is the e-commerce lead there. Um, they kind of separate the users into Instacart are the most time sensitive customers. And so it, they look at those that they have a real immediate need for rush delivery and they look at it more as a premium service. But their own delivery service, Giant Delivers, they leave it, lean into Giant employees and they add personal touches like drivers get to know if people want deliveries to the front of the back door of the garage or if it's somebody's birthday or so or children in the household. So if if they can build a relationship and in groceries, sometimes you can where there's some consistent, um, you know, people that are less urgent. I need this in the next couple of hours might want to see the the giant food guy come to their door like the milkman from from the old days. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I, I think Kroger has been investing in this for years and years and it has a head start. Um, some, some of these others are playing a little bit from behind. I mean, what, what kills a lot of these programs is in the short term, the picking and delivery fees uh, or picking and delivering costs rather for the retailer are substantial. And, you know, Instacart has significant financial backing and, uh, and investors that believe in the long-term vision of the company and so can withstand um, losses on, on aspects of the, the operations of the business. You know, people are basically betting long on the model, even, even if in the short term, the model is, is expensive and a giant and some of these other, these other grocers, they've got to, they've got to make that, they've got to struggle with that, right? It's, it's, yeah. it, is there enough, uh, room for the CEO and CFO and others to invest in some of these solutions, even if it means in the short term, their their fiscal their financial performance is going to be objectively worse, right? Um, so, I mean, it's it's a hard this is a hard problem, but ultimately they've got to find some way to manage the the customer relationship. And when we when we talk about brands, I'm going to switch I'm going to switch gears here for a second. Let's talk about brands that have done a good job here. Uh, I'm a huge baker, as we've talked about in the podcast. Um, Annie, also behind the scenes, making the podcast possible, is a big baker. And I use a lot of- I'm, no, I'm, a, big, I'm a big eater baking. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> it totally counts, yeah. And so uh, I, I've used King Arthur flowers a bunch in my baking over the years. King Arthur rebranded this year from King Arthur Flower to King Arthur Baking Company. And they've, they've expanded their product portfolio. They launched a new e-commerce site on Big Commerce. It's a great site, it's a great experience. And they've expanded the products that they sell to instead of being you know simply flowers and things like that, it's everything you would need to bake. I mean, and I've got their, uh, their, their Christmas catalog here. They, they sell things like the Wolf Stand Mixer. They sell uh, King Arthur branded, uh, bench knives and baking late baker's lames and things like that. They sell King Arthur branded stoneware for storing flour uh, effectively. They have, I mean, just a ton of products and they're trying to become a one-stop shop for baking. So they've taken a position of strength where, you know, they were a, a, a beloved brand of manufacturing flour 
when we think about a commodity product, like how, how come, how commodity can you get other than flour? Right. But they had differentiated flowers and they had people who love their products and they used that base to expand to being a baking retailer. That's going to own direct to consumer relationships because people will go to King flour or King Arthur's baking company and, and can transact there instead of going through other, other means. And I, I love the strategy. I love the clarity their website also has a lot of content that adds value and, and it's just a really great play. I mean, it's, it's obviously a group that cares about owning their own shopper relationship. And I think they've done a really effective job at it. Yeah. And you see that, you see that in pet as well. Like I guess, especially in those, in those uh, categories where people have an emotional connection to the activity, there's an opportunity to create an educational and inspirational bond with the consumer uh, to drive margins and repeat business that you you won't get if there isn't that emotional relationship. And I, I think those are the places, and baking is certainly one of those, where if you love to bake, you want to use the best and you want to use things you trust and you want to get tips and tricks and be part of a community. And um, yeah, and you know, Rob, we've talked a lot, you know, both in the DSI, just as we build this and uh, and also in in commerce in general, just how the the new thing is community. The new value that you can deliver as a as a brand uh, is a connection to people who have the same passion for what you're doing or the same interests. And I wonder if there's something in that for a lot of these brands, particularly. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's ultimately the the risk is. Um, you're going to, you're just competing with a, a plenty good enough product and private label mm-hmm. in a category that's increasingly commoditized and where there's a lot of D2C upstarts and, um, and where your relationship with the consumer is uh, disintermediated by retailers and aggregators and others. And you're just, you know, you're just producing widgets, right? That's, that's like one fork in the road, final destination that a lot of these brands are going to end up in, right? They're just, they're producing a product that's, you know, kind of comparable to a lot of other products. And the brand name means less and less over time. And the other, the other fork in the road, it's almost the, the other opposite, is having a direct relationship with a community of people that find value, not just in your products, but in your, your point of view and, and other value that you add to their lives outside of simply the product transaction. You know, like you're saying, community is one um, is one example of it. King King Arthur has uh, others like the the recipes and, and baking guides and sourdough guides and other things that really help people out that are value add above and beyond just transacting to buy a pound of flour, right? And so I, I think that that uh, there's a lot of different ways where you can transcend the purely transactional nature of a lot of product categories and move into one where there's, where there's real brand loyalty, right? Where there's, there's a real engagement direct with the brand, um, you know, between the shopper and the, and the brand. And I think there's also opportunities. I remember doing a, a webinar with Rachel Tippograph from Micmac, and she was talking about how increasingly brands are partnering up, you know, non-competitive but related brands will do offerings together. Um, so you can imagine like a King Arthur connecting up with somebody else in the flavor or food business um, to bring together a partnership for a particular, um, I don't know, set of recipes or, um, 
or expertise in, in how to make something particular. Uh, and, and I think more and more brands might need to lower some of their resistance to kind of associating with, with other brands and kind of build almost an, a baking ecosystem of experiences together. I think that would be really cool to experiment with. Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the things that, you know, sort of coming back to groceries just for a minute, uh, the Financial Times, uh, in, in the article that Jonathan Ely and, and Ryan McMorrow wrote, they have a terrific chart uh, for the struggle for margin in online groceries. And they kind of lay out um, all the different sort of models to handle, uh, to handle you know, pick and, and collect and delivery and show the, the profitability gaps, um, even with a, a delivery or click and collect fee. And there's just, basically nothing in the online models today that's delivering um, uh, profitability. And so at there, you know, something's going to have to happen to shake that off, either making people pay more or finding a way to, to make this process more efficient over time. So uh, I think the challenges are there. I think the, the opportunities for thinking about what are the, um, the differentiated experiences that can be designed to kind of take back control and start bringing in that data. I think it is a, you know, it's a five-year plan, but I, I think brands are really going to need to focus on it. Totally agree. And uh, I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap. I mean, this is, this is, I think, becoming an existential issue. Everyone's got to think about how they own the direct-to-consumer relationship some way, shape, or form in the future. It is indeed a perfect place to close, Rob. Uh, thanks. Um, I would I would say, one of the things this brings up in my mind is once again, these are hard conversations, right? The, the need to sort of rethink your business model and, and rethink who your customers are. They're, they're big conversations to have. And that's why for, at the DSI, we're going to have a, an upcoming webinar uh, with Joe Gerstant. He's a, an expert speaker, author, and advisor on organizational diversity and inclusion. But he's coming to the DSI to offer uh, our, our members, our listeners, the latest techniques for modeling and encouraging candid conversations in a time of rapid change. I, I forgot the stat, but it's something like 85% of business leaders in the UK and US said that there were things that they didn't feel comfortable discussing with, uh, with fellow employees or people to whom they report. And that number has to change. So join us on Thursday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, Annie will include a link in the show notes. So as always, thanks for joining us and thanks for being part of our community.